Welcome to Questions That Matter, a podcast of the C.S. Lewis Institute. At the Institute, we pursue discipleship of the heart and mind. I'm your host, Randy Newman, and I'm delighted that my conversation partner today is Josh Chadrow. He's uh, been the director of the Center for Public Christianity in the Raleigh, North Carolina area. He's moving to Birmingham, Alabama to be on the faculty at Beeson Divinity School. He's written a number of books. He's been a guest before on Questions That Matter. He's written several books about apologetics, and he's written a new book about doubt, Surprised by Doubt, and that'll be what we'll center our conversation on. Josh, welcome back to Questions That Matter. Thanks for having me. It's a delight to join you today. Well, tell us a little bit about the Center for Public Christianity, which you're you're no longer going to be the director, but you're still involved in it, and it's this really great ministry. Tell us, give us a little spiel. Yeah, this the spiel is is that uh, eight years ago in Raleigh, a group of Christian leaders came together and said, "We need to think about discipleship in a secular age. We need to particularly think about how we're doing discipleship for emerging leaders." who were in their 20s and 30s and 40s, and how, and how to better equip them for what's, what's coming down the pipe within our culture. And they started looking around who's doing this well, and they found a program in New York that Tim Keller had started um, called Gotham Fellows and the Center for Faith and Work. And uh, they brought in Catherine Allsdorf, who was leading that center to do some consulting, and wooed Catherine into... Uh, helping them launch this for two years. And then I had the privilege of serving as the director for five years. And we really brought in uh, a lot of thinking, not only about uh, faith and work, but culture in general, how to do evangelism, how to do, uh, how to, how to talk about the gospel in public spaces. And the kind of core of that is uh, a nine month fellowship program for people in the Raleigh area. But we also do other events uh, for the public uh, in in the Raleigh-Durham area. So uh, that work is continuing on. There's a great group of leaders that are carrying that carrying that out, and I have the privilege to to, to stay involved even even as I take on this this new role at Beeson. And and so tell us about Beeson. Uh, I think some of our listeners will be familiar with it. It's part of Samford University, but it's the Divinity School, if I'm correct on that. Yeah. So, uh, and you're going to be a professor, I imagine, of apologetics. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think uh, my uh, official title is uh, professor of evangelism and cultural engagement. Ah, good. Okay, apologetics good. is part of part of both of those things. Great. And and for people who aren't familiar with Beeson, give us a little yeah. bit of a snapshot. Beeson is one of the, I think, treasures that uh, many people don't know about. It is a, uh, it is a confessional Protestant evangelical divinity school that um, is is only residential, and you have the opportunity to come and study with what I think is. Uh, uh, one of the best faculties uh, in in the United States, and yet the faculty to student ratio is seven to one. Yeah, and it trains uh, people in different Protestant traditions: Baptist, Anglican, Lutheran, 
uh, Presbyterian and, and the Methodist tradition, all in one community. And then you have different tracks depending on your particular tradition. So it's, it's a wonderful environment, um, theologically orthodox, uh, Protestant, as I said, evangelical, and yet has the spirit of um, togetherness, uh, even, even while learning from people of different traditions. And, um, and my job there is to teach on culture, to teach on evangelism, and teach on, uh, and to figure out and kind of pull the resources that are there, the, the theological resources, the his, historical resources uh, of the faculty together to say, how do we actually meet the challenges of evangelism and apologetics in our churches? We're, we're, we're equipping church planners and missionaries and pastors. And so one of one of our convictions is not only that theology should be done in the church, but uh, as we're thinking through how to best reach the next generation and how to kind of deal with secularization, those answers are going to come from within the church um, as God has designed it. And so that's 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 at least my angle from on Beeson Divinity School. Well, I'm 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 really happy for you. I I had the privilege of visiting there at Beeson. Um, uh, you're you're stepping into the the role that uh, a good friend of the institute, uh, Lyle Dorset, has had. And uh, Lyle invited me a couple of years ago to be a guest speaker in one of his classes. And I I just was struck with that very pastoral. Uh, intimate kind of environment for a seminary. And you're right, the student ratio to faculty seven to one. Uh, I got to be a guest in in his advisee group, or I, that may not be what it was called, but it was there in his office and people shared prayer requests and prayed for each other. It was, it was really, really beautiful. And it was, it was the exact opposite of the stereotype that I think a lot of people have of a seminary. I, I think a lot of people think of that as very sterile and academic, which is not fair, I don't think, but some some do better than others. And um, I, I think that's going to be a great chapter for you there at Beeson. Um, well, let's talk about your newest book. You've co-written it with Jack Carson, who's a professor at Liberty. Um, but it, it's a book about doubt. And, I, and something tells me some of the listeners might say, the guy sounds like he's quite confident, and um, he he just became a professor of apologetics and evangelism and cultural engagement. He probably doesn't have any doubts, does he? Um, and yet you, you begin your book saying, um, sometimes people ask me if I, Josh, still have doubts. I sense that for many, it's a surprise and a letdown when I tell them that I do. Perhaps they like to imagine theologians and especially apologists as ironclad warriors who, having conquered all of their demons of doubt, are triumphantly parading with the angels from the conference to conference, basking in the glory of victory. If that's your image of either of us, let me disabuse you of that notion right from the start. So so this book is to help people, but it sounds like it's also a struggle that you yourself have faced. Is that right? That's right. And I, and I think sometimes we what we've done is we do a disservice uh, as theologians and as as leaders when we act as if hey we, you know maybe this is maybe doubt was something I struggled when when back in the day when I was you know an immature Christian but now you know I've conquered all of that and uh, kind of we we give this kind of overrealized vision of the Christian life uh, and I don't think that's helpful for for those who are actually 
uh, dealing with doubt. Um, because I think at least for me, that's not actually, that's not, not actually the case. Um, there's still questions spinning around in my mind and, uh, that I don't, as I explained in that chapter, I, I know how, uh, the church and different theologians have responded to that through the years, through the, some of those questions, but I'm not exactly sure what the best response is all, always. And, and so the Christian life isn't having certain, a kind of certain certainty on every question that, that might pop in your brain. And so it, first of all, saying that, Hey, doubt is something that Christians, even, even mature Christians still struggle with. However, that doesn't mean that I'm valorizing doubt or I'm saying doubt is a good thing. Uh, Rather, I'm, I think we need to have a realistic vision, and particularly in what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls a secular age, where we, we, f- we no longer live in this kind of culture where Christianity is just assumed. So we, we interact and we deal with people every, uh, for many of us who, or we watch television shows that don't assume that there is a God. We we have these patterns in our life where God isn't actually in them because we live in this secular age. So we still believe, but we also feel what Charles Taylor describes as cross pressures. Mm. So I think it's, it's, it's really important to be honest about those cross pressures that we, we feel. At the same time, still saying, hey, but there's, there's good reasons to believe, even as I'm feeling these cross pressures. And that's what I'm trying to do in that opening uh, is say, hey, this, let's own up to the fact that we still we feel these cross pressures, and uh, and I'm not immune from that uh, just because I have a PhD and I'm a theologian. You know, I um I've I've told this story a number of times, maybe even on other recordings of this podcast. Um, uh, I I was in an Apple store buying a computer. I was about to start um my doctoral program. And I told the guy, the salesman that I was buying a computer to start a doctoral program. And we got talking and he asked what the program was in. And I said, it was, I said, religious studies, cause I was trying to make it comprehensible. And he said, Oh, I used to be religious, but I had too many doubts. He said, I, I just, I just could never be a hundred percent sure. And I said, to him, Oh, I I've never been a hundred percent sure. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "What? What are they? Wait a minute! You're you're going for a doctorate in this stuff." I said, "Oh, that'll probably lower the percentage even further." Um, but I, I think there is this idea that it either has to be 100% certainty without any doubts, or I need to abandon it. And I and I think that both non-Christians and Christians seem to have that assumption. Is that do you think that's a picture for for yeah. a whole bunch of people? Yeah, so I, I would describe um, you could you could break it down into kind of four groups. You have the religious who are kind of spinning, saying, "Oh no, there's I've got this complete uh, certainty," and everyone else who doesn't believe like I believe um, is just an idiot, <laughs> you know. So it's just vile and crazy. And then you have kind of the the opposite extreme where you have the new atheists with that kind of rhetoric as well. Everyone who believe, who's religious are just are just dumb and crazy. Um, 
what I actually find, especially when I'm leading a fellows program of 20 and 30 year olds, um, is that most people are actually in between. They're, they're, they believe, but they, they have their doubts. And at least in our program, the way it was designed, they would, they'd be open about those doubts. Hmm. Um, but they still believed and, and they still wrestled with those and they wrestled in community, which is the way to do that. But then on the other side, there were those who I talked to quite a bit who aren't believers and yet they're, they're actually open. They don't think that religious people are all crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they sense the kind of lacking in their life. Um, and so, so I actually find that, that, the many atheists or agnostics or the nuns feel the cross pressures of belief. They're tempted by belief where believers are tempted by or or dealing with doubt. They're dealing with, Oh, well temptations to actually believe this. And I actually find those conversations are much more productive. Yeah. uh, As, as of course anyone could imagine rather than just, um, but, but, but I don't think it's, it's, it's helpful even in those evangelistic conversations to cast it as, as you know, kind of what you were saying in that conversation is, well, you know, I'm absolute, I'm absolutely certain. And let me just throw out the evidence. Uh, and if you can get to 99% or a hundred percent, then you can become a Christian. Hmm. You know, our lives are full of, of choices or decisions that we're not going to, that we don't have a hundred percent certainty and so uh, I, we use some of the language of Pascal in the book, and I think it's it's helpful. We creatively retrieve Pascal to talk about a wager um, and, and making a wager. And, and af- after looking at the big picture, what's what's what are you going to wager your life on? Hmm. And and we and and you know what? Everyone in some sense wagers, even if you say, well, I'm not going to wager you have to live somewhere. You have to make certain decisions. You're going to value something. You're going to go somewhere for meaning. And it seems like religion, uh, one of the things that religion has done is it, it provides those things. It gives you a grid. It gives you a story by which to to view your life and live your life and, and have meaning and value. And so it seems to me that everyone's kind of wagering on a story of some sort um, with their lives, even if they don't kind of think that through. One of the uh, ministries we have here at the C.S. Lewis Institute we call Keeping the Faith. It's uh, a, a program that's been developed to equip you, particularly parents and grandparents and other adults who are caring for children and grandchildren, the, the intentional discipleship of the children that God has placed in your life. And uh, we've got a lot of resources at the Keeping the Faith tab on our website. Um, we know that if you're if you're uh, caring for children, that you're busy and you're tired, uh, and so our goal is to provide you with uh, resources that will be available to you at a moment's reach, uh, as well as uh, deeper, more thoughtful resources when you have the time to fill your well. So um, you'll find videos, articles, monthly newsletter, recommended resources. Uh, we regularly post on Facebook and Instagram. We also have two study programs available, so please check out this resource at our website, cslewisinstitute.org slash keepingthefaith, and it's keeping hyphen the hyphen faith. 
but you don't even need to know all that. Go to our website. I think you'll find Keeping the Faith pretty easy to find, and there's a wealth of resources there. Thanks. Well, all right, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, sort of kind of play devil's advocate, or maybe, maybe I'm trying to represent some. I think there may be some of our listeners who might be thinking right now, well, uh, yeah, this sounds really nice, Josh and Randy. You guys tend to agree. Good. I'm happy for you. Um, but, but doesn't the Bible offer us a very, very high level? Doesn't, don't we have statements in the Bible you know, so that you may know? that you have mm-hmm. eternal life. I mean, isn't, isn't there a, isn't there a certainty or a, a um, shouldn't faith eliminate doubt according to the Bible? Where, where are the places that you look to in the scriptures that say, well, yes, it's a very high level of confidence, but I don't, I don't know if the Bible promises 100% certainty. I, sorry, I've put words in your mouth. That's probably not right. But um, so, where do you turn in the scriptures for uh, support of your thinking about all this? Yeah, well, I I would just say that we're talking about oftentimes what people are talking about when they're talking about uh, certainty is is through the lens of um, the Enlightenment, certain epistemological certainty coming with a certain you know, okay, what can I prove just using reason alone? And so they're going, they're, they're talking about certainty along those lines. And when the Bible talks about um, certainty, it can be using that word not in exactly the same way, a kind mm-hmm. of confidence. Um, and I would say that confidence comes through the work of the Spirit. And so when the Bible's talking about this kind of confidence in the gospel, a certainty in the gospel, I do think that the Spirit does that in our lives, but it's not through a kind of um, just kind of logic chopping neutrality, right, that that you would get in certain forms of kind of enlightenment reasoning. And so certainly the Bible wants to give us confidence. And it's, as Augustine famously said, you know, it's by believing that we understand. Mm. And and so I, I guess that would be one distinction to make between how people typically talk about certainty today and then the biblical usage, which isn't along the same lines. And, and so we're talking about a, a work in the, of the spirit, um, which, which isn't going to be some kind of neutral way to approach that question, which is demanded by a kind of enlightenment modern uh, epistemological conversation, or at least many are thinking along those lines. Um, so it, it, I, I'm wanting to make a category distinction there. And, and, I, and at the same time, I'm wanting to say for a lot of, for, for theologically, I would want to argue that the work, the, the gospel does actually, the spirit works with the gospel to give us a, a kind of confidence. Hmm. But I wouldn't want to say that that is always kind of at the same level, right? That there's, there's times uh, that we experience doubt and that, and then other times the spirit works and we're, we don't have that kind of same nagging doubt, but there can be long periods that we're experiencing that. And I, I would want to maybe draw a a similarity with, um, with my understanding of remaining sin in the Christian's life. 
Hmm. So uh, the the Bible speaks about sin, and it speaks about sin as remaining, not simply uh, something that once you become a Christian is going to completely go away. And so I do think there's this moment in conversion where we have this confidence, but that doesn't always, you know, stay at the same level throughout the Christian life. Yeah, good. You're, um, I, I want to underline you, you're, you're using terms, you're saying confidence, certainty, and uh, I, I find confidence to be a really, really good word, and, and certainty also, but, but again, you're right, in, in our modern world, people hear certainty, and they think that means absolute without any chink in the armor at all, and it doesn't seem like that's the same way the Bible uses the idea of confident hope or confident trust. Um, I like what you say about, you know, there, there still is ongoing sin. There still is the need for us always to be renewing our minds and to be growing in our understanding. And a whole lot of doubts come from, well, I just, I, I really haven't dwelled on that enough or haven't thought about that enough. Um, so what, what about uh, some practical advice you'd have for someone who really does struggle with doubts, a Christian who's struggling with doubts? Yeah. What, are, what are some things you offer? Your book offers a number of strategies and insights, and I think it's really helpful. What are just a few? Yeah, well, one of the things, the, the kind of dominant metaphor of the book is we're borrowing from C.S. Lewis, uh, which I'm guessing most of the listeners will appreciate. I would, podcast. I would certainly hope so. Yes, and by the way, we we're required to say his name at least three times in every podcast. So you're doing well. Okay. <laughs> um, and so, uh, of course, he has this famous analogy of a house in Christianity as, um, in mere Christianity, he describes as as him trying to get people in the hallway, and. And not so much kind of wanting to wrestle with the intramural debates that Christians have. And I think that's helpful, but kind of the question in our book that we turn to is, yeah, but what happens if you've always grown in the, up in the house? But what happens if you've actually grown up in the attic? And the attic is this kind of reactionary uh, structure built in the corner of the Christian house, the larger mm-hmm. Christian house, the larger mm. Christian tradition, that is really built out of a kind of fear, is built to for protection against certain things happening within culture. Um, and, and yet at the same time, because of that, it can begin to feel suffocating. Mm. Mm. And, and so for many in today, we, you have certain movements like the ex-evangelical movement or just the deconversion movement, deconstruction movement. They're starting to, they've grown up in this kind of small corner of the Christian house and they start feeling pressures and they start feeling uh, like they can't breathe and they jump out the window. Hmm. Hmm. And, yeah. and what we're encouraging in the book is we're saying we understand what you're feeling. We understand some of what you're saying is absolutely right, but we just don't think jumping out the window from the attic is your best bet. And instead, if you would come down to the main floor of Christianity, uh, then actually what you will find is 
a more compacious dwelling. <laughs> mm. You will find some interesting figures that have had to navigate doubt and who give us a more ancient way to do so that's not reacting against the kind of things that the attic is was was built reacting against. Mm. Oh, so, good. so that metaphor, what we're, what I'm trying to get at, and here's my advice, is first we need to kind of uh, say, okay, what what kind of what kind of Christianity are you reacting against? What kind of Christianity have you maybe grown up in? What version? And what's distinct about that room versus what is essential to Christianity? Hmm, and I think that's a distinction that the historian Mark Knoll gives. And I think that's really important because sometimes what we're wrestling with is a certain distinctive that we inherited. but but that's not the primary thing. That's not essential to Christianity. Yeah. And, and, and so coming back to the main floor helps you because you see, oh, actually, you know, Augustine, for instance, wasn't, uh, his, his kind of version of Christianity was rather different. And some of the things that I thought were so central weren't central to, to him or to Pascal or Lewis at all. Uh, and it doesn't mean you necessarily have to shed all your distinctives that you grew up in, but it, it does help you navigate, um, kind of prioritize what it is that, that, that you might be rejecting or having trouble with. Some of those things you might just be able to let go. But, and here's, it goes, this goes back to what we were talking about before, Randy, is that the attic not only says this is what's important, kind of cast your eyes on certain things that are maybe not the most important things, but it also kind of forms the way that you go about trying to believe. And sometimes that can happen with an anti-intellectualism mm. where you were taught, hey, you know, you know, don't look into that science or don't, don't look there or don't talk to this or don't read that book. Um, and, or a kind of what we call a kind of quasi-rationalism that imagines that faith is really easy. All you have to do is just read this book and look at the evidence and you'd have to be an idiot if you, if you don't believe this mm. because we've got all the evidence right here in front of you. Yeah. And we find both of those kind of postures actually problematic. Yeah. And so what we advise people to do and here, second, at least the second time, Randy, I've used Lewis's name. What we <laughs> advise people to do here is as, as Lewis models, which is, is yes, to look at Christianity, to look at it. Yes. Look at the evidence for the resurrection. Look at the evidence for the, for the central claim of Christianity that Jesus uh, died and rose again. Look at that evidence, but also look through that truth, mm, the incarnation right. and the resurrection right. to see how it illuminates the world mm. that you find yourself in. So look at and look through, mm. and then we get a little creative here with Lewis, but we also say step into that truth. Mm. And, and so what's actually happening when we experience doubt is often that it's we're not we're not doubting everything we're actually believing certain things that cause us to doubt other things mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and often what we believe is inherent is we inherit through certain 
practices, what we find good and beautiful and true, we, in, we, we actually inherit at a deep level through the practices we're engaged in. Um, you know, uh, whether that's, you know, spending our day scrolling on Twitter or through, you know, sh- shopping or watching sports, what's most real, what's most important becomes, comes kind of into us and is absorbed into us by these practices. Mm. And Christianity gives us all of these practices that to help us wake us up to attend to the world differently. Mm. Uh, whether that's as as Lewis said, so we've at least got three here now. Lewis talked about you know uh, be careful not only what you read, um, but uh, you know an atheist can't be too careful what what they read, but also. Um, he encourages people just to take walks in nature, to touch some yeah. grass, yeah. <laughs> some really practical advice. To, but but also in you know Lewis, since we're riffing off Lewis here for a moment, you know the Psalms, <laughs> and the Psalms are an important part of his life. And mm-hmm. d- are we praying as we experience doubt? Are we going to the Psalms, and is that becoming the kind of cadence for our spiritual life? So. We have to step into those practices. This is how Christianity was meant to work. Mm. And often I talk to someone who's doubting and and I'll say, well, how's church going? And they'll say, well, I gave up on that. Uh. But it, it, it seems to me that if Christianity is true, if Christianity is true, the way that you're going to get this confidence isn't through simply looking at or kind of coldly or in a neutral way looking at the evidence. But by adopting the practices, trying on and seeing, and the Christian claim is as you do that, um, and you do that while you're looking at and looking through the Christian story, that um, that, that, that your, your eyes begin to be open more. Hmm. Uh, you're, you have a certain posture so that you actually receive those evidences and you see the world differently because through that posture. And that's an important part of it. I'm very excited to tell you about a new resource we're working on at the C.S. Lewis Institute. It's going to be a series of relatively short articles that answer challenging questions to the Christian faith. So less than a thousand words, which is like the front and back of one piece of paper, maybe even less than that, of questions like, why does a good God allow evil and suffering? And isn't Jesus just like all the other religious people and aren't all religions the same? And uh, the, the questions that people are likely to ask us if we get into some really good, deep conversations with them. And it's gonna be a growing resource. There'll be a new, uh, a, a new topic and a piece of paper, basically, uh, for you to read and and share with non-believers. So check it out. It's going to be, if it's not already, it will be at cslewisinstitute.org slash resources dash category slash challenging questions. Or if that's just crazy, go to cslewisinstitute.org and search for questions. I sure hope that'll help Thanks. So looking at, looking through, but stepping into, and the stepping into, I I don't hear that from too many places. So I think you're contributing something that's really very, very helpful 
Um, and it's not, uh, oh, stop asking your questions and just go to church. No, mm-hmm. um, but, but there are things about us that um, we experience. And, and toward the end of your book, you talk about things like beauty and dignity and um, you know, get, getting involved or appreciating things around you as part of dealing with doubt. Um, I think that's very helpful. I, I'm helped a lot of times just from that little cute slogan of you, sometimes we should doubt our doubts. Yeah. Sometimes I have these doubts and okay, well, let me look at it. Well, yeah, it's a doubt. It's a problem. It's not quite as big, uh, you know, now, you know, start evaluating, doubting my doubt. Well, okay. Yeah. It's a problem, but it's not a defeater. And if I were to abandon the faith and walk into whatever that is, atheism or secularism, well, that that creates all sorts of other problems. And yeah. now I have trouble with why do I love looking at nature so much if the world is totally pointless and meaningless and random? Why do I love listening to Sibelius of all conductor of all composers? If life is pointless and meaningless, that was probably a bad illustration because some people would say, I've listened to Sibelius and he makes me think life is pointless, but never mind. But I, but I'm, I'm drawn to beauty and we're drawn to story and literature. And um, uh, it's more likely, it's more, uh, the Christian faith has a more capacious dwelling. That was a phrase you used. I really like that. Mm-hmm. Let me push one more thing. Uh, the subtitle of your book. So your, your book is called Surprised by Doubt. Mm-hmm. And then your, the subtitle is How Disillusionment Can Invite Us into a Deeper Faith. Now, you've already started on this a little bit. Can you say a little bit more? How? Okay, let's say, okay, you're surprised by doubt. You, you, you realize, oh, I was told I should never have doubts, but no, I have some doubts and that's okay. Now, how does that, how can that then lead me into a deeper faith? Yeah, I, for for many people who might be listening to this podcast, they grew up in certain forms of Christianity that didn't talk about the great tradition, and so when they began to wrestle with doubt, they they had you know the resources right in front of them, or maybe the popular apologists that were right in front of them. And yet, what I would hope that doubt would do, and our book would do, is help people realize that there's two thousand years of critical inquiry of of thinking about these these deep questions. Hmm. And um, and so to be able to tap into that and be resourced in that in a and in, in what we try to do in the book is to do that in a way that is digestible um, for for the typical reader. Mm-hmm. So in that way, I think being exposed to the richness and of the tra- of the Christian tradition uh, as you're dealing with with doubt. The second thing is, I think. For me, doubt has caused me to rely more on God rather mm-hmm. than simply my ability to kind of figure everything out. Now, mm-hmm. that's not, uh, that doesn't take away from anything I just said about critical inquiry, but the best Christian thinkers in the tradition have said that Christianity is much more than a philosophical system and should not be redu- reduced to simply a philosophical system. And yet it's an encounter with the living God. Mm. That's at the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is a person and an event. Mm. And so when we begin to imagine, hey, I have all these questions and Christianity is going to solve all those questions and neatly and, and, and neatly put a bow on this. 
And where does grace come in? Where does prayer come in? Where does, where does me on my knees before God um, come in? And for me, it's as I've wrestled with questions, I, I, I can see different periods in my life where I was treating Christianity as primarily a kind of philosophical kind of guide to life. And I mean, not, not philosophy as a way of life, which I think in that way, Christianity certainly is, but philosophy as basically uh, in a kind of modern guise that just becomes epistemology, (laughs) which Mm. is, you know, how do you know what you know? And, you know, imagining yourself, you know, having some very abstract questions, but Christianity is at the heart of it is is a relationship with God and an experience with a living God. And so disillusionment, doubt, struggled, they they've driven me back to prayer and and and, and back to a dependence on the living God. And so in that way in those two ways, I think God is sovereign enough to use our doubt and disillusionment for hmm. good and even for our good. And that that brings me great hope as a Christian. Boy, that is that's some really good insight, and I'm 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 really thankful for it. Um, and I think that that may be a good place for us to kind of draw this to a close because, um, uh, so your approach, it is as intellectually rigorous as we need, but you're very quick to say, but that's not all we need. And so, yeah, there are answers, and yes, we should wrestle with this, and we want to bring in the best minds who have wrestled with this deeper. But, but as you say, we rely on God's ability to meet with us in ways deeper than just our intellect, not contrary to our intellect, but deeper. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I think that your book uh, does a really good job with this in a really short amount of time. It's uh, less than 150 pages or so. So um, uh, it's, it's a great resource. And, and I, I think that that approach of Looking at, looking through, but stepping into is tremendously helpful. So any last thoughts you want to uh, leave us with before we sign off? Yeah, I, I would. one thing we didn't cover that I want to just mention is that in the middle of the book, we really are wanting to take some of the spaces or some of the alternative spaces that people are stepping into when they leave Christianity. Um, serious and i think the, the way we tried to do that is just to say let's inhabit those and what what would it be like to live there and why are people jumping off there and then what are as you said before randy what are some of the real issues there in other words if you're going to leave christianity um or even even if you're dealing with doubt well consider the alternative you have to live somewhere mm. and that that that's really important because i think for some people when they're dealing with questions or uncertainty with the Christian faith they, they grew up with. And I think they should wrestle with those things. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're not as critical about what they're about to jump into. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and so to just kind of jump in, as you've said before, oftentimes that brings a lot of problems, a lot of questions. And in many cases, uh, you know, they're, they're just kind of uh, barely keeping afloat. If they've just jumped into this big ocean, <laughs> they're just barely keeping afloat. And 
uh, I think Christianity has 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 been worked out and has remained for two thousand years because there's something to it. Mm. And so that's that's what I would just one thing I wanted to note for our listeners is that um, that's the other move to make is before you jump, see what you're about to jump into. Great word, great word. Thanks so much. Um, well, I'm going to uh, list, uh, I'm going to put a link for your book uh, on the, in the show notes and some other things that will be relevant to this conversation. Thanks so much for this. Um, may the Lord bless you as you step into this new chapter there at Beeson. Uh, to all our listeners, we hope this podcast and uh, all of our resources at the C.S. Lewis Institute will be very helpful for you as you seek discipleship of the heart and mind, as you pursue digging deeper and uh, as you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind.